Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Amanda Balby, with Consultant 360 Specialty Network. Previous studies estimate that pain impacts up to 55% of people with HIV and negatively impacts function. However, limited data exists regarding factors that contribute to pain in older adults with HIV. A new study presented at ID Week 2020 aimed to do just that, to better understand the contributing factors of pain in older adults with HIV. With me today to discuss the study and its implications is the lead author, Dr. Miley Young-Karras, who is an associate professor in the Department of Medicine, Divisions of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health, and Geriatrics and Gerontology at the University of California, San Diego. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Karras. To start, can you give us an overview of your research and what you found? Absolutely. In general, chronic pain or pain that lasts more than three months is very common in people living with HIV. In some studies, they cite up to 85% of a specific population experiences pain. In the older adult population, uh, we found that it's closer to 66%. And this is, you know, an active, outpatient, fairly healthy older adult population. Pain diagnoses often represent three out of the top five common comorbidities that, that older adults with HIV report that they're dealing with. So, so these are, are common things, and they're very relevant to older adults with HIV. I changed my pain management practices as, as an HIV provider back in 2016 when the Centers for Disease Control published their chronic pain management guidance documents. Specifically, I began focusing on uh, increasing my recommendations to my older adults with HIV to pursue non-pharmacologic approaches to pain management, such as massage and physical therapy and chiropractic care, and I tried to minimize opioid prescriptions. And what I realized um, is that a lot of the older adults with HIV that I was caring for were on really high doses of opioids. Many of them were much higher than the maximum recommended dose of 90 morphine milligram equivalents a day. And many of them had been on doses like that for decades. A little bit of, of background for maybe the reasoning behind that is, you know, historically, AIDS care was hospice care. And the majority of older adults who are living with HIV today are long-term survivors. So, you know, they were started on these pain medications decades ago when people didn't know if they were going to survive and they were really struggling with different types of conditions. And those prescriptions just continued. In addition, um, most non-opioid medications that are used for pain, like muscle relaxants and uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen, are relatively contraindicated in older adults because natural age-related changes um, alter the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of these medicines, which then results in higher risk-to-benefit ratios of these drugs. So I found it really difficult to, to manage the pain of, uh, of my older adults with HIV within the context of all of those kind of competing issues. I also found it really difficult to get them access to, to non-pharmacological pain management approaches. And a lot of that was related to some of the health inequities that exist in this population, such as social isolation. Again, you know, a majority of, of older adults with HIV are survivors. Um, some of them did not expand their social circle because they didn't know that they were gonna live to be old or older. 
they often lack transportation, and HIV stigma is still really prevalent. And, and an example of that, I ordered water physical therapy for one of my patients, and insurance rejected it. And in the, in the rejection letter, they specifically said, even though it was an indicated diagnosis, the letter specifically said that they would not approve it because my patient was living with HIV and hepatitis C. And we all know that you can't get HIV and hepatitis C from pool water. So that clearly was HIV stigma contributing to an access issue for that particular person. All in all, um, you know, it was difficult uh, to, to adhere to these CDC pain uh, management recommendations. And I noticed that as I was trying to do it, the relationship that I had with the people that I cared for was being harmed. And they were struggling and they were experiencing a lot of difficulties. And I just thought that, you know, that there has to be a better way to do this to be safely prescribing medications for people and allow them to still have a good quality of life and preserve the therapeutic relationship between physician and uh, patient. In order to develop any types of new approaches or, or, or innovations in clinical management, you often have to first start with better understanding the factors that contribute to chronic pain and chronic pain medication use. I just happened to already be a participating investigator in a multi-center longitudinal cohort study that's focused on older adults with HIV. The study is called ADHOC. That stands for Aging with Dignity, Health, Optimism, and Community. And I approached that group to see if they would be interested and willing to evaluate the question of, you know, what factors contribute to chronic pain in older adults and what factors contribute to chronic pain medication use in older adults with HIV. This is a fairly large cohort. There's 11 different centers across the country. There's over 1,000 or so persons that are, are enrolled in this cohort. And of those, 696 persons reported that they had chronic pain. So we were able to take that population of persons and perform bivariate analyses as well as some multivariate logistic regressions to determine what factors are associated with pain and pain medication use. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so what factors impact pain and pain medication use in adults with HIV who are age 50 years or older? For those that are not aware, um, we consider an older adult with HIV 50 and older primarily because of the epidemiologic evidence that suggests that they accumulate common age-associated conditions about a decade earlier than HIV seronegative comparators. So that includes things like heart disease and osteoarthritis uh, and cancers and things of that sort. So in the study that we performed, we actually found uh, some really interesting findings with just using the bivariate analysis. In older adults with HIV who had chronic pain, we found that an annual household income less than $50,000, unemployment, having six or more medical conditions or multimorbidity, Tobacco use um, and low or no alcohol use was associated with pain. Pain was also more common in people that reported anxiety, depression, loneliness, lower social well-being, and lower cognitive function. However, when we applied those factors into a multivariate logistic regression model, we found that only multimorbidity and tobacco use increased the odds of having pain. We also discovered some protective factors. So if you were a male gender, black race, or had higher cognitive function, you were less likely to have pain. On the other hand, um, older adults with HIV, uh, of those that had pain, 
about 46% of them were using some sort of pain medication. Unfortunately, we weren't able to determine what type of pain medication people were using that wasn't captured in the specific cohort. So it's just pain medication use in general. And that, you know, can be anything from taking acetaminophen all the way to taking opioids. The bivariate analysis of that population showed that pain medication use was higher among heterosexuals, persons with lower education levels, again, annual income less than $50,000, unemployment, multimorbidity, low and no alcohol use, as well as the similar conditions of anxiety and depression, low interpersonal support, and lower cognitive function. But again, when multivariate logistic regression models were applied to that, only multimorbidity and low annual household income was associated with pain medication use. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what other knowledge gaps exist among this patient population? I would love to further explore some of the reasons behind these findings. You know, why does tobacco use increase the odds of chronic pain? Why is annual household income associated with pain medication use? I'm also interested in uh, further looking at chronic pain self-management strategies of older adults who are living with HIV, particularly as it relates to substance use uh, of different forms. And that kind of comes from some clinical observations where I've noticed a couple of my older adults having or reusing substances that they had used in the very distant past around management of their pains. I have an 85-year-old woman who was admitted to the hospital for hypotension, and she was acutely intoxicated with alcohol. And she had not drunk alcohol for many, many years. And, and when I inquired about like what, what kind of prompted that, she said that she was in pain and her pain medicines, which are already at the maximum of 90 morphine milligram equivalents, were just not cutting it. Similarly, I had another woman who was admitted with a stroke and she admitted that she'd used some cocaine, again, because of her pain. So, you know, these are anecdotal findings in the clinic, but I think may be indicative of of a a greater problem. And I'm really interested in exploring that further. I'm also interested in better understanding the psychosocial factors that contribute to the pain experience of older adults, particularly social isolation and past trauma. I think there's some interesting biologic questions, too, such as what happens to the brain when it's been exposed to decades of chronic opioid use? You know, like, how does that change their experience of pain? How does that change their relief of pain? And, you know, is it even possible to taper people off of of these medications once they've been on them for so long? How do your current findings add to the existing body of knowledge? It's really interesting. Despite pain being a very common condition, not just for older adults with HIV, but people living with HIV kind of across the board, um, it's really understudied. Not a lot of people have a good understanding or done a lot of research on it. Dr. Jessica Merlin um, has probably done the most work in this space, and she's really expanded our understanding of pain in HIV. If you read anything of hers, it will be revelatory. I mean, she just does amazing work. Um, But what's different about this study is that we really are specifically focused on older adults living with HIV and evaluating pain and pain management from that specific perspective. So I had said earlier that there are some limitations in pain management of older adults because it's not safe to use medications like NSAIDs or muscle relaxants because of increased risk of GI bleed for the NSAIDs and increased risk of falls and confusion for muscle relaxants. 
it is a unique population with some unique challenges, and I think that this work will help us move forward in developing better interventions. Absolutely. And you mentioned before some research questions that you hope to answer in the next study or two, but what are the next steps in your research currently? What are you working on right now? I am currently performing a small pilot study that is evaluating a group acceptance and commitment therapy for pain that's provided by paraprofessionals and comparing that to group pain education. The impetus of this study, and forgive me for telling so many stories, but really a lot of the work that I do is influenced by the people that I care for and my frustrations about our current medical system. But um, I, I have a patient who I inherited, and he was on pretty high doses of oxycodone for his neuropathy. And when the CDC guidance documents came out, I started asking everybody about, like, how does your pain impact your function, uh, you know, as was recommended. He told me that he doesn't know because he doesn't do anything. And he said, basically, I spend all day, every day, sitting alone in my apartment, not doing anything. And I just casually asked him, I'm like, oh, you know, like, don't you get lonely? And he burst into tears and basically said, I am terribly lonely. He's like, you know, unfortunately, I don't have any connection with my family. I have not had any connection with my family because of past behaviors, and I miss them terribly, but I have no idea how to connect with them. They live across the country, and then and he just cried, and this shocked me because this man is so stoic, um, and he just was bawling in my office. <laughs> he did tell me that he knew the name of his niece and he knew that she'd recently gotten married and he knew that she was on Facebook. So we decided that we were going to try to reach out to her in that office visit. Um, I just sent a Facebook message to her. We found her just providing, you know, like his name and his phone number and that he was interested in reconnecting with his family. And, and I scheduled a, a follow-up three-month visit. Unfortunately, he didn't show up. But I noticed that he wasn't asking me for refills of his oxycodone. He ultimately ended up back in clinic probably about like six months later. And I asked him about, you know, like the oxycodone refills if he was getting his medications from another physician. And he told me that since the last visit, he'd reconnected with his family, that he and his brother were talking almost every day, and that he didn't need his oxycodone anymore, and that he was able to manage his pain better, you know, like just through those social interactions, and he was a little bit more active and getting out. And I think that just struck me about how great, at least in in that one person's life, you know, these issues of isolation and loneliness and lack of connection impacted his pain. From that point on, I've been in hot pursuit of, you know, developing strategies to help people better cope, to connect with others. And and that led to this, this study that I'm currently doing. The reason why I'm also specifically doing it using paraprofessionals is because access is an issue. Access is a major issue to therapy, not just for, you know, like older adults with HIV, but a lot of people that are underfunded uh, from an insurance standpoint. And uh, I am trying to figure out ways (laughs) to enhance that so that more people are able to get the treatment that they need. So that's one study that I've currently got funded. I just submitted two grants to look at leveraging technology to try to address some of these issues as well. One of them is focused on the development of and subsequent evaluation of a home-based neurostimulator for pain. And I really hope that that study gets funded because it could provide a lot of relief for, for folks. You know, this, is, this is a strategy that's already been proven to work, but historically has to be given in 
a clinic setting and moderated by trained personnel, but um, we're hoping that we can design it so that it's safe and easy to use in the home setting by older adults with HIV. I also submitted another grant that is proposing to develop a electronic smart pill dispenser, so, you know, to enhance safety of, of opioid prescriptions if needed, and pair it with a provision of self-management strategies for chronic pain, such as meditation and relaxation. Both of those depend on the NIH to fund them if I, if I move forward with those. Mm-hmm. Very exciting stuff in the works. Um, and I, I definitely uh, can see your connection with your patients and how they affect the work that you do, which is really great. Thank you. You know, like it's, it's tough being a doctor nowadays, you know, <laughs> we, we uh, are limited a lot of times and, and we're losing our autonomy, uh, you know, like our administrators and health insurance companies are often kind of dictating what we can and cannot do for the patients that we care for. Um, and, and research really allows me to kind of step out of that box and try to find new ways to, to do that in a, in a way so that the healthcare we provide is, is more equitable. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time today and uh, answering all my questions. Thank you for your interest and and for uh, the opportunity to really amplify this problem.